Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, the episode in which we will discuss the death of Who Julia dies? Three. <laughs> Someone dies in this well, play? You know, it's Rome a Shakespearean dies. tragedy. Whoever is who, whoever's named in the title dies. Right? It's probably, yeah, likely to die. Yeah, Make bad, really bad decisions and then die. Can you, are there any tragedies that are named like the, the individual in the title? Doesn't die. I don't I know. I don't think so. Romeo no. and Juliet. Coriolanus. Anthony and Cleopatra. Othello. Hamlet. Yeah. Othello dies. They all die. I don't remember. Yeah. Lear, yeah. Macbeth. Yeah. Kills himself. Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Dang it. Yeah. yeah. I think it was Peter Lightheart that said you can tell the difference between Shakespeare and tragedies and comedies because at the end of a comedy, someone gets married. At the end of a tragedy, everyone's dead. Everyone's dead. That's right. The stage is littered with bodies. Yep. There are two sacramental experiences, marriage and death. Much ado so, didn't die. Marriage? It's not a tragedy. Oh, I thought it was a guy's name. What to do? <laughs> I haven't read that one. I didn't get your joke. I'm sorry. The lazy guy knows what to do. <laughs> the oh, Tempest doesn't nothing. die. <laughs> That's a late comedy. It's a romance. It's different. A romance? <laughs> yep. Yeah. A romance. It is. It's a Shakespearean oh, romance. We All right. Not for for Saint Patrick's Saint Valentine's Day. Stop it! You guys are making me do small talk. Knock it off. All right. It's not really. This isn't bad. Didn't make but, you. Oh, where we haven't started the record. I no. I already greeted the show. I already started the show. We are recording. This oh. is recording. Man, this is too much. This has been going on too long. Okay, we are now discussing Act Three, in which Rome dies. I mean, <laughs> dies. Right. And the person and the office. They both die. Act That's Three. Good. I remember in the last episode, as long ago as it was that we recorded that, that I wanted to talk about brooding in Act 3. So don't let me forget about that. Okay. And then Brian, who sits across from me in the office and can secretly tell me the stuff that he wants to talk about before we get on the show, said that he wanted to talk about history. 
wonder why. <laughs> and then Heidi, who hasn't said a word to me, but because I know her pretty well, is going to want to talk about literary analysis and commentaries. Uh, True. <laughs> did I even welcome you guys yet? I haven't even welcomed no. you guys. No. Guys, I'm Matt Bianco, and I'm here with Brian the Phillips and <sighs> Heidi H.W. White. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, Matt. Thank you for having us today. Hello, Matt. Bianco, which also means white. It's true. You know, Heidi and I are basically related. It's so true. Hmm. Yep. Great, 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 great grandfather Noah. Good story. Mm-hmm. Good story. Now it's banter. It now is. it's banter. Okay. Let's move on. So, can I Act give a literary three. fact about um, Julius Caesar? Just to start us off, this might be the last literary thing I say because this scene is so heavy on rhetoric and all this stuff in history. So that. Before Julius Caesar is a bridge play between Shakespeare's great histories. The last play he wrote before this was Henry V. And this is a bridge between the histories which have elements of tragedies and his great high tragedies. Pretty soon coming up, we're getting Macbeth and Othello and Hamlet, followed by Antony and Cleopatra, which of course picks up where this play left off. Uh, or leaves off. So right. you're seeing a lot of elements of history and the later high tragedies here in this play, which makes it a bridge and really interesting to think about from both angles. It kind of unites. It's not really one or the other. It unites them. It's a pretty special play in that way. I like, I like that you know the order of their, of their writing because I don't. And then you say stuff like that. And then I think to myself, oh, so all those times where I marked something down as an echo of Macbeth, actually Macbeth is an echo of this. Yeah, it's a precursor. And lots and lots of commentators, and I actually think they're wrong on this, but lots of Shakespearean scholars find uh, similarities between the brooding of Brutus and the brooding of Hamlet. And I, I, I think they're missing some stuff there. They're two very, very different characters with very different motivations. But Shakespeare is kind of bringing this idea of a protagonist who is making, that we're, we're getting an inside view into choices that they make that change everything about the play. And before this, it's not, it's not quite that way. We see some of that with Henry V with Prince Hal, but he, Mm -hmm. he, most of, most of that play, the action is on stage and there's very few soliloquies, but here we have with Brutus, we get kind of our first tormented protagonist with very deep psychological issues that impact the play. Uh, and of course, that's picked up again with all of the great high tragedies coming up. And they're right. kind of opposites too, right? Like yes. Brutus broods and then speeds into action. Mm-hmm. And I mean, broods briefly and then speeds into action. And then Hamlet broods. And broods. And broods. <laughs> and broods. <laughs> yeah. And, and both of them can... And, and both of them get criticized or can get criticized for their length of brooding time. Right. Yes. So apparently there's some virtuous middle ground. Let's go Aristotelian on you. Right. Oh, yeah. The golden it's mean. Interesting too, though, that both of those characters, it, it's nearly impossible to tell whether they're doing the right thing. Yeah. You're still left in suspense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. No matter how long they brood, no matter who they listen to, no matter who they reject. <laughs> they still right. go into action and you're going, I don't know if he's doing the right thing. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> 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 okay. Yes, but no, right? Like most of us, um, well, okay, me, and I'm going to project onto everybody else I know. 
Um, <laughs> we read this, and the first time or two that we read it, I know exactly who's writing wrong, and I'm and willing. Julius to, Caesar. Yeah. Okay. Who? The very first time I read it, yeah, Brutus was right. right. Julius Caesar was wrong. Huh. Now, obviously, here I am, you know, a half a dozen times later, and I have right. a completely different view. But the very first time I read it, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Brutus <coughs> was right and Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare, Caesar, blah, that the guy was wrong. Shakespeare was wrong. And the first time I read Hamlet, I thought, um, I thought that Hamlet was an idiot. Yeah. Until somebody told me not to think that or to consider an alternative <laughs> view, and then I thought of that, and then it's like, oh, oh, eh, really? Eh, and I'm always changing my mind. Wow, That's I true. think. In my experience, most people read Julius Caesar and immediately think Brutus was was wrong hmm. that they shouldn't have killed him. In the That's in the um, Lost Souls of Writing level two, we use Julius Caesar for the example story all the way through. And I want and, and so what we try to do is we take one of the books and we write all of the affirmative essays, example essays from that book, and the other book we write all the negative mm-hmm. example essays from that book. And I wanted Julius Caesar to be written with the Brutus in the negative. But the person who I hired to write those sample essays for me re- refused and wrote them off affirmative. Huh. <laughs> so I had to rewrite them all. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, interesting. And you know who it was? I'll tell you who it was. I'll name, the, uh, I won't say her name, but I will tell you this. Her first name starts with a K and, her, and it ends with an Adarina. And her last oh. name starts with a K mm-hmm. and ends with an urn. Ends with an urn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and she's a she is a force of nature. So <laughs> if she think if she has answered a should question one way, that is how she is going to write those essays. She's a, a woman of strong conviction. Well, then it means she needs to go back to level one. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not training sophists. Just, we're training people over. of conviction. Did you so, teach her? And you're in. Did you teach her growing yeah, up? I did. So she, you're the reason she thinks this about. Julie. This is clearly my fault. Absolutely. Nah. Okay. So, tell tell us the history that you taught yeah, her. Yeah, I want to hear Brian. that. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't want to do that now, but I will. Now that I we've guess. got it set up, so we're all turned against you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do this when I had a more sympathetic audience. <laughs> no, I think uh, that the, the dominant question in the play, of course, is: Should the conspirators kill Caesar? Should particularly Brutus? Should right. Brutus? move forward with this conspiracy to kill Caesar. And in the play, most people draw the end up on the side that no, they should not kill Caesar. Particularly in that moment when Brutus himself stabs Caesar, right? Mm-hmm. You have that moment of just epic betrayal, ultimate betrayal. Um, but historically, what I think we're missing, even though the play does a good job of bringing us back and forth, of who is the good guy, who is the bad guy. Is Caesar a tyrant? Is he really a noble leader? We go back and forth all the time, but historically the issue becomes even more complex. And that's something that if, as I mentioned in episode one, if Shakespeare's audience was more aware of the historical context of the life and assassination of Caesar, then we're missing out on some details that are really important in figuring out what decisions should be made. Um, just one example, because I, I uh, in a classroom setting, I would, I would talk for multiple class periods about this, but I want to condense this to just a, a minute or two. The conspirators involved here 
were very likely alive during the days of Sula. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sula was huh. uh, a general born into a pretty influential family who had, you know, taken a, a downward turn. And so he seemed to be one of those people who's really determined to prove himself and reclaim his family's good name and all that. Um, he was a wonderful general. He put down an uprising of the Greeks with King Mithridates, I believe it was, um, won a tremendous victory, came back uh, as should have been welcomed as a hero, but one of his political rivals, I believe his name was Marius, uh, while Sulla was away, had essentially exiled Sulla's family and were, was making all kinds of false accusations about him, much like Pompey and Caesar. Right, Caesar's away fighting for Rome. Pompey's back home accusing him of all sorts of terrible things. Also like Caesar, Sulla comes back to Rome with his army. Violation of Roman law, but understandable because one, he wants to take vengeance on Marius. And two, he doesn't know if Marius is plotting to kill him when he returns. So he returns home with his army. The Senate and the public is in just such disarray that he's actually granted emergency powers, hmm. absolute dictator over Rome. According to Roman law, that was supposed to be for six months. And then he gives the power back. Well, Sulla brings peace to Rome, calms down the chaos in the Senate, takes vengeance against Marius and doesn't give the power back. He then creates essentially hit lists. Every political enemy, anyone who was a friend of Marius, um, anyone that he deemed as a threat, um, and just does away with all of them, kills all of them. He keeps power for four years. The years are important here, (coughs) from 82 um, to 78 BC. Okay. If you remember the lifespan of Caesar, 100 to 44 BC. So Caesar was a young man when um, Sulla Mm. took power, about 18 years old, Uh, which means that these other conspirators were also young men at the time, perhaps a little older than Brutus, right? So this is going to be fresh in their minds. These These were kind of current events. Here's a man who comes into Rome, brings his army in, takes vengeance upon his political rivals, and once he seizes power, refuses to give it back, and annihilates anyone who stands in his way. Hmm. So then what do they oh, see Caesar Brutus doing? Is, that, sorry, but that's also Brutus. Might be, might be why, to read Brutus in a positive light, might be yeah. why Brutus is unwilling to kill anybody but Caesar. Right. We'll kill Caesar and Caesar alone. No Mark Antony, nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. So to to see the conspirators in a more sympathetic mm. light, I guess, they know that if they don't kill him before he takes the crown, there's probably no going back at that point. You know, once he sees right. his power, what's going to be his first move? Well, to get rid of all of his enemies. Right. So they've lived through this before. Most of them, having been from influential families, probably had loved ones killed. Sula. Hmm. So when they see Caesar march in with his army, being the only one left in the position of consul, what are they thinking? Here we go again. 
Mm. Right. So when we come back to that question of should the conspirators have killed Caesar, it's really easy for us to say, well, Caesar didn't do anything wrong. Right. But it could be, even if we grant that, it could be that they're seeing we don't, we can't risk Caesar turning out to be Historical another, precedence. another Sula. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish, I wish just for the, for this, the sake of history there and to be able to draw that out. I know you pointed out in, in the first episode that, that Caesar's audience, Caesar's audience, sorry, Shakespeare's audience would have kind of, would have grown up and known all of this stuff. Whereas, you know, we're trying to recover. Maybe. But I kind of wish that there was a reference to Sula in there somewhere. Like, like when Brutus is giving his speech about the, the, the serpent and the snake, the, the, the egg, you know, the serpents in this mm-hmm. in the egg, or the adder right. still in the egg. The adder's egg, egg yeah. That, yeah. like in that speech, right? Somewhere in there, there could, if there was a reference to Sula, that could then, then you know, then we can, then we're pointed to go look that up and figure out what he's yeah. talking about. That gets kind of left out. Brian, but, is Sula in Plutarch? This because Plutarch was probably Shakespeare's primary source for this. Uh, there, yes, I believe so. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I was curious that he didn't. No, I know that. Uh, Brutus mentions Tarquin. Uh-huh, yes, he does. Yes. Which it so he does make these historical allusions as to why they're thinking what they did. The Tarquins were, of course, the sort of line of really evil kings that the Romans had, and eventually they they were so bad that the Romans completely changed their form of government to right. make sure they would never again have a king. Which is uh, this has nothing to do with Shakespeare, but um, is the opposite of the Greeks. The Greeks had a monarchy right. and they got rid of their monarchy because the very last king was so great. We could never have one that yeah. great again. So let's just change our form of government. Yeah. They wouldn't even move his body because they regarded the place where he died as holy ground. Yeah. So they right. buried him right there. Right. <laughs> well, and remembering that to the Elizabethan audience, and I know I keep hammering this, but I do think it's important to what you said Brian, about how we tend to read this play and say, no, they shouldn't have killed Caesar. The Elizabethan audience would have reacted the same way because Julius Caesar was such a great hero to them. And so what Shakespeare had to do in this play is weave in threads of ambiguity that pointed to Julius Caesar Hmm. needing to have been killed, right? That's his challenge. The challenge for us is seeing this in any way as positive towards the conspirators, or excuse me, positive towards Caesar. We see Caesar, the American ethos sees Caesar as a tyrant who took over democracy. That that would not have been the way the Elizabethans saw him. So they had to kind of weave some, he had to weave some strands in there to make them question the virtue of Caesar. Why? In order to make, to bring in some ambiguity to this play. So his, he, he, does it for ambiguity, ambiguity for ambiguity's sake? Well, I think he does it. I, I think he does it in order to humanize the characters. That's what Shakespeare. I mean, I don't want to speak to Shakespeare's motives, but his results certainly are. In play after play, there's something. There's something human. He doesn't write ciphers. There's something human, especially in the tragedies, about. Some, so, you know, in Henry V, who is a beloved ruler, uh, there's threads of ambiguity that people question him, especially the moderns, right? So, mm-hmm. when we did, when David and I did the Henry V series, I had to defend Henry to the modern interpretation. 
Hmm. Whereas the medieval and, and Renaissance interpretation of Henry would have been overwhelmingly positive. There's nothing bad to be said about Henry V. And so they wouldn't have been able to see those threads of ambiguity. Whereas in the modern times, I had to defend him. So these that's true in, in Julius Caesar as well, that the Elizabethans would have seen Brutus. Like the challenge for Shakespeare is going to be to humanize Brutus to them. Make him not just a villain. I totally get your what I mean. I understand what you experienced with Henry V because I feel like I have to keep doing that with you guys. <laughs> I have to keep defending Julius Caesar because you all are just a bunch of Caesar haters. <laughs> well, and I think Shakespeare had to write some ambiguity into his character. He hammers on the ambition theme. I think he did it to make my job hard. Well, you may be right. Hmm. What but he's trying to characterize, he's characterizing these people not just as political and historical ciphers, but as humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what we all love about him, really, because he's not exactly. a, he's not preachy. He's not. He's not a propagandist. Um, <laughs> it's true. The thing, the thing people accuse him of all the time. I um, know because they don't get him. Brian, I have a question about the history. Okay. Because there is another clue that I, I think you can help us with. It's imp- Brutus's lineage is important, right? The guy that adopts him, the the father of his wife. There's a history there too that's yeah. informing all his character. Tell us more. You mean as far as the connection with Roman history, yeah. or because um, isn't Cato involved in preventing tyr- tyrants? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, and suicide, which becomes really important in Act Four. So, yeah. 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 Man, she's so, always I, talking about suicide, right? I mean, to, <laughs> to put it simply, Brutus Brutus is able to look back both at Roman history itself, but particularly at his place in Roman history and his lineage in Roman history, and see that this is absolutely his responsibility. Mm-hmm. That he he has to put a stop to this. Because as a Roman, there is nothing worse than living under a king, mm-hmm. period. Nothing worse. And so it would be the height of cowardice and it would be treason for him not to take part in this if he is convinced that Caesar is going to be a tyrant hmm. or is a tyrant. Right. So to give the most direct answer, yeah. you know, it's... um it's uh, it's interesting because in the last episode we hinted, or not hinted, but we we wrestled with the issue of whether Caesar is reacting as a person who's driven by his own ambition and pride, or is he operating out of a sense of duty and responsibility in the office? Mm-hmm. Brutus is wrestling with the exact same thing. Right. The exact same thing. It's his duty as a Roman. It's a do. It's his duty as, um, hmm. you know, a part because of his family line, because of his history. He has to do this. That's good too, because we don't tend to think of, we don't we don't tend to have that kind of identity, right? I mean, yeah, I'm American, but that just means where I'm from. It's not who you are. I don't necessarily yeah. think of that as who I am. Like it doesn't inform the way I think or act or, yeah. I mean, it does, but I don't really think of it that way, you know? So I, I wouldn't think, Oh, I have to do this because I'm an American. Um, Cause that's what it means to be American. The, they, I don't, there's no compulsion in my, for my behaviors in that sense. 
Well, and as Heidi said, we have this lens through which we read all of these plays and we're not even aware of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a hard time relating to Brutus because, I mean, for one, just I don't want to overstate it or just be unnecessarily mean, but I'm talking about myself here too. We don't know enough of our own history as a people or as individuals to feel bound to it. We don't have the sense of place and identity and pride in who we are and where we come from to, to allow that to have any kind of claim on us. But Brutus did, you know, um, speaking of just American history at one point, not only was your behavior (laughs) governed by a sense of duty as an American, but it was even as, um, as a North Carolinian, or a right. Virginian or a Texan or, you know, uh, <laughs> that had a claim. Especially Texans. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe they're an exception. They might still have that. The modern day um, exception. Yeah. But we don't really have that, that sense of rootedness and heritage. Um, I think that's a sad thing. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it is something that causes a disconnect between us and, so these characters. So he so like Hector, he has to go do this. Like he's a prince Aeneas, of Troy. he has yeah. to go do this. Like, yeah. Because that's what Romans do. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um well, act three. Rome dies. Rome dies. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Mm. I think you're not you're not wrong about that. It really never gets better. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Man, that's another historical debate, isn't it? I mean, Caesar Augustus is still to come. Mm-hmm. Right. The Pax Romana is still to come. But all of that grows out of this horrible tragedy that can't ever be taken back. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> so I don't know. They even it's say, never the same, certainly. They even say this this will be acted out in ages to come in, in, in worlds or countries and people that don't even exist yet. Mm. Right. Doesn't Cassius say that? Yes. Yes. Well, and you guys talked about, this is, I I love that you said that because you both mentioned how the characters orient themselves to the past in this play. Uh, They make claims to the past because of Tark when we're doing this, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. They also orient themselves, interestingly enough, into the future. In this play, Shakespeare has written the characters so that they know that they're doing something historic that reaches, that has implications far, far into the future. Lots of references, especially in this act, to, you know, is Brutus standing over the uh, the body of Caesar the, and he's they, they all wash their hands, you know, the literal bloodbath, as mm-hmm. Brian said in the last episode, they're washing their hands in his blood. And he, he makes a claim that they will be remembered for generations to come for destroying tyranny in Rome. So this... These characters are very aware that they hold a place that is connected to the past and also has implications far into the future. Yeah. Cassius, his exact words are, stoop then and wash. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? That's right. Around line 125 in mine. Yeah. Yeah, it was Cassius. I said Brutus, but it is Cassius. And that is... But, but Brutus goes on, right? How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport? 
Yeah. But now on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust. So which honestly, Cassius's words, interestingly enough in this art, I think that that speech of Cass, that little speech by Cassius is more worthy of Brutus. And like, I think Brutus's words here are dismissive and cruel. They are. And so, but that's not, this, this is his, I mean, he's done the thing. Now he is completely corrupted. His fate is sealed at this point. And that, that his first words after Caesar's death here are just so <clears throat> callous. Hmm. Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that. Yeah. How do you <laughs> sit? Well, I, I think that he's just sort of mentioning that this is going to be immortalized. Um, Cassius or Brutus? Brutus. How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport? Um, so yeah, many entertainment in plays, in retellings, reenactments. It's the next two lines that are problematic for me. Yeah, me too. Like, like, hint, hint, it's at the base of Pompey's statue. Remember the guy that you killed? Yeah, look who gets the last laugh. And then the no worthier no, than dust. No, I, I think that what they're, I think he's reminding them that this is going to be remembered because they put an end to a tyrant. The same man who Dying. killed Pompey. No, there's only one way to read this and it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, they also, they, um, they don't stab him until after they, they have what I think they would have perceived as confirmation of Caesar's tyranny. Yes. Yeah. They do test him. That's true. There's a kind of test going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk us through that, Brian. And that, that I mean, that's an interesting point right there. Well, yeah. Essentially, um, Caesar has exiled um, the brother of. Oh goodness, who is it? Metellus. Is it Metellus's brother? Metellus's brother. Metellus Symbarium. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so he goes yet again, not the first time, to plead for mercy on behalf of his brother. And Caesar refuses even to hear him out, refuses to listen to a word. And that's when Caesar utters that. um, The North Star speech. Yeah, I'm constant. Mm -hmm as the North star um, of whose true fixed and resting quality, there's no fellow in the firmament. And even when Cinna and Decius and Casca, uh, Brutus, uh, they, they all go and plead on Metellus's behalf that Caesar shows some mercy to his brother and Caesar won't listen to them either. He right. has he he won't entertain anything they have to say. He dismisses all of it, and his response to every single one of them is, "My mind's made up. Mm-hmm. My mind's made up." And it's, it's someone else comes. My mind's made up. So this is confirmation in their minds, right? And granted, I'm I'm summarizing this in a way that captures what the conspirators are thinking, right? right. Emphasis on in their minds, right? right. I mean, they in are perceiving minds, yeah. it through a through a lens, right? Yeah. Through a grid. Well, and through this whole time, Caesar refers to himself in the third person. Right, which is just irritating enough. Right. Well, yeah. and goes to the point of the office. <laughs> that goes to the you. point of the office again, right? The royal we, the royal Caesar. Like, so. right. And not only that, but they're doing it in the most disrespectful way possible. They know that he hates for, I mean, I'm not going to say that, that I believe that Caesar actually hates to be flattered. 
But hater, hater, Caesar hates hater. to be perceived oh, as somebody who succumbs to flatter. Right. So are you saying they're they set them up to fail? Yeah. Yeah. They go in there as flattering as possible so that everybody will know, oh, if you give in to us, it was because of our flattery, thereby making it so that he can't give in to them, which he well, can't do anyways because he's right. But there's a synthesis there, right? They, they set him up and he shows the worst side of him. So it's a both and situation yeah. that's happening here. Like the whole play, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> like little, like a, like, like siblings Girl, right? who like want to get their brother in trouble. So they goad at him until he snaps, right? That, that's yeah. the and then same. scream as loud as they possibly yeah, can. So like yeah. both, of their worst, <laughs> both of their worst sides are showing. So I think that he is being set up and he is acting like an ass. Right. So, we don't see that there because we like flattery. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, dude, why didn't he give in? They were being so nice. Right. Mm. Well, I I think it is true that the conspirators went into this day with their minds made up. Mm-hmm. Granted, mm-hmm. it is true that perhaps they were trying to, uh, it's a possibility that they were trying <laughs> to set up Caesar right. here, but it's also true that Caesar reacts like a tyrant would. Uh-huh. He reacts like someone who does not care what anybody else wants. His mind is made up. He doesn't want to listen to anything. I don't know. So I, yeah. I agree. I think it, I, agree with I don't know. I, I, the, the version I, one of the versions I saw that scene was the thing that, that which version is this? Was is that this the a movie? No, no was it, it? Okay. it was it was a live play in Stanton, Virginia. The, the uh, what do they call that place? Blackfriars or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, you've uh, been there. That's yeah, a, yeah. I've never like been there. Half a dozen times. I love that place. Well, it's I live in Colorado, so oh, that's awesome. Okay, anyway, so so Blackfriars Friars play. They made Caesar look they, sympathetic. They read this scene, so where it's it's basically. I mean, again, I'm not a good actor. I think I said that last week or last show. Uh, that scene there where he says, I could be well moved if I were as you. If I could pray to move, prayers would move me, but I am as constant as the Northern Star. They read that, that actor read those lines so that instead of sounding like, I could be well moved if I were you, you loser, instead of sounding like that, it was more like, um, I, I want to be moved. I want to be as you, but I can't. I'm the Caesar. If I could pray to move, prayers would move me, but I can't because I'm the Caesar. Mm. And it was, I mean, I had to add words because I can't right. do it with my emotion, but that guy did it with his voice. But I, w- I would say, though, that that still would be confirmation because Rome is not supposed to be governed by one man mm-hmm. who, once he determines he's unmovable, yeah. that's it. Oh, that would be confirmation to... Right. The the point of him this is what it's yeah. the conspirators' way of saying yeah. this is what we have now. Right. But the thing that it does is huh. it undercuts the argument that he's being ambitious, that he's doing it out of out of personal ambition. That's the part where it changes. Or to throw in the other side again, or it confirms that he's already fulfilled his ambition. Right. Here he is essentially seated on the throne. Well, then Brutus is a liar with he senators he's not ambitious. <laughs> With senators, um, well, it, it still reveals the state of things. In other words, I, I think what Brutus was saying is it could only get worse. To the extent that the argument is about a single ruler is a tyrant, whether he's ambitious or not, 
then yes, it proves that. To the extent that it's about ambition, then this conversation, you mean? Yet. Yes, this conversation. Right. Not yeah. our this conversation, me, you, and Brian. <laughs> this conversation between Sun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, no, I knew what you meant. When you have a single ruler who can r- reject out of hand the pleas of senators, then I think it's confirmation in their minds that we have a tyranny. Right. He doesn't have to listen to anybody. Yeah. Right. And there's right. Nothing, those motives there's don't matter. Yeah. yeah. Ambition yeah. doesn't matter if that's the thing. It's, but then it's weird because they make ambition the the heart of the argument later in the speeches. But well, I, right. I agree that there is, there is a distinction there. With particular reference to him taking the crown, though, there's still another step. The crown he didn't take. Right. But that, I mean, that's what they bring up, right? Is that um, they suspect his ambition was to it, but he was already operating as a tyrant from mm-hmm. their perspective. This is why, obviously, Mark Antony's the good guy. <gasps> that's a that's a statement, man. That's the thing you said. <laughs> talk, talk, yes, those were words. That's what those were. Um, that's another situation where you bring in the history. And man, keep your history to yourself, Brian. I don't want my mind changed. It's kind of, it's kind of like the French. You have this whole French Revolution to do away with the king, and they end up with an emperor instead. Yeah, um, well, be, right, had because, far more power than yes, the than the king ever did. Because destruction is not actually a good policy upon which to build a government, right? So that yeah, blowing stuff up doesn't normally create order. Yes, to destroy the bad government creates is it a vacuum into which tyranny steps and i think that is what the conspirators here are not considering right they are so Mm -hmm. focused on getting rid of the bad which and we don't know what their personal ambitions are and that's what cassius hints at to brutus in act one he makes a, a a claim that you're just as worthy as Caesar. So what we don't know here is whether there's any kind of personal ambition that they're meeting. So I think Matt's point that you could read Caesar sympathetically here is valid, but I don't know that it changes what's happening in the scene, as you point out, Brian, that they have, they're setting up Caesar to give, to justify what they're about to do. Right. And then they do it, and they stab him. And they all live happily ever after. Yeah, and that's the end of the play. Yeah, doesn't he fail <laughs> Actually, his it is for as far as many people. What he does? What? No, you're, that's true. Um, most people get finished Act 3, and then it's like, why are we he's still reading? Yeah, well, he's dead, so that must be the end. Nobody yeah. really knows. So when we get to 4 and 5, we're going to surprise some people. So. I hope so, because I yeah. have no idea what 4 and 5 are about to do. <laughs> um, what... Is there any way that he could have passed the test? I mean, even if he says yes, isn't he also thereby proving that one man makes the decisions now? Great point. Yeah. That's a great no, point. I, no, I, I don't mean to imply that it was a test he could pass. Uh, right. I'm saying that basically this situation is confirmation. Mm-hmm. The fact that he shows up at the Senate, the fact that he has to show up at the Senate in order for anything to be done is right. confirmation in their minds. Right. Which is weird, right? Because he doesn't want to show up at the Senate and they right. make him show up at the Senate so that right. things could be done. Right. One particular thing to be done, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and there go. therefore, I repeat myself, Mark Antony is the good guy. 
All right. Well, let's get to that. Let's. So that he dies. They all stab him. The great moment of the play. Order, different order, but yes, that happens. Yeah. yeah no. Stabbing first, <laughs> then death. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I don't want people to be confused. A bunch of times. Yes. Yes. He stabbed stab um, each yeah. of them. Stab him. Brutus stabs him last. A That's two Brute. So then falls Caesar. Caesar. Then falls Caesar. Um, That's a really touching moment too. It is. I Especially the way we read it. At yes. two Brute. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Caesar. Yeah. But, yeah. You, you can't forget the, M, the post M dash words. At then, two Brute. Even you, Brutus, then uh, die. Either. Then die. Then, yep. I don't, I don't belong here if even you, of all people, have turned against me, my best friend and my son. Yeah. So, Matt, I know that you wanted me to bring up another historical detail here, but apparently Caesar was very vigorously fighting the conspirators, his assassins, until he saw that Brutus was one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in the actual event, he... he quite seriously wounded a number of the assassins because we kind of forget that Caesar was a warrior. He was a general, a fighter. He fought back against these men until he saw Brutus. And then apparently he gave up at that point. Right. That that was kind of the, all the fight was taken out of him when he saw that Brutus was one of them. So if you want to understand Caesar, far more sympathetically mm-hmm. you know, humanize him then that is indeed a very powerful moment and it's always played i've never seen this play without tears in my eyes at this point no whether it's a well done performance or not even like a high school performance i've seen that i i will cry here because this is this is the saddest thing to be killed by someone who claims to love you mm. is, I mean, it, it is a deep betrayal. Yeah. So I think Shakespeare did something masterful by making Brutus sympathetic in any way, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then what Brutus says to, um, what Brutus says to Antony when he says, um, he says that he's going to tell them their reasons mm-hmm. for it. And then he says that the reasons will be good enough to persuade even a son of Caesar. Right. Which, you know, depending on how you, Oh, he says in line two forty five in mine, he says, our reasons are so full of good regard that were you Antony, the son of Caesar, you should be satisfied, which is interesting because right. The, the speculation is that Brutus, is, in fact, is the son of Caesar. Exactly. Right? Yep. Historically. So, our reasons are so full of good regard that were you, Antony, the son of Caesar, and I should know, you should be satisfied. Right. Well, and he goes, like Brutus goes very much, after the death of Caesar, my my reading of this play is that Brutus goes very much up, up on a high horse for a long time. Mm-hmm. And Oh, yeah. into Into the next act. Right. So he is, he, at this, all he says after this is, I think, an attempt to regain or defend some kind of moral high ground Mm -hmm. that is, that continually fails. Cause I think his reasons get weaker and weaker as he goes, like he makes a couple of ridiculous statements. I can't, I'll have to find him now. I meant to write him down, but things that just aren't defensible that I, I mean, how do you kill your 
father figure and then like go about your day. Like I, but he's trying, you know, by giving Mark Antony a voice, I think he's trying to be like, no, 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 I'm honorable. You can go ahead and make a speech, which of course ends up being Brutus's undoing mm-hmm. by letting him make this speech. It's the worst decision in the whole play other than killing Caesar. <laughs> so, or not I, killing I wonder, right. well, it led to a lot more death than even the initial killing of Caesar, right? Right. So, um, yes. I wonder if there's a connection between uh, Brutus getting more and more desperate to claim the moral high ground and defend his actions and his inability to contemplate or brood was the word we used before Hmm. over whether this was the right decision. That's a great point, Brian. That's really good. Every time he had an opportunity to really think through whether to join the conspiracy or not, he was interrupted. Mm -hmm. And now as he's trying to defend this action that he went through with, he finds himself getting more and more desperate to be able to do so. And, and he doesn't brood anymore. No, He speaks like Caesar, like, like he, like he, his mind is made up. He knows, and he can speak immediately without having to contemplate. Hmm. Right. There's no room for contemplation here with Brutus. When somebody says we should kill Antony. Nope. We should not let Antony speak. Nope. Right. I mean, Cassius literally has to say, Brutus, can I have a word with you? Here, yep. over here to the side yeah. where people can't hear us, except for the audience. Yep. You're right. He does. And and to go to the literary structure of the play, again, I talked about this last week too, uh, that Shakespeare's a little bit on the nose here. This is in act three of Mo of Shakespeare's plays, almost all the time, it's the turning point act. Something happens that is, you know, the climax of the story and everything kind of un- has, that has been building to that is consummated in this climax scene or a couple of scenes and then unravels from there. And in this particular play, I think, is the most glaring example of that. So as in teaching this play, I always draw attention to that, that there's the, it is so on the nose with the rising action, the climactic turning point, and then the descending unraveling action to the tragedy at the end. This is the turning point for Brutus, for Mark Antony, for Cassius, obviously for Caesar, for the wives, everything hinges on this, on the, in the private sphere and more importantly to the characters in the public sphere with the death of Caesar. This cannot be overstated the importance of this in the history of the world, honestly. And Shakespeare really points at that here. Yeah, it would it'd be hard to dispute this as being the most dramatic turning point <laughs> in, in any of the plays. In the act threes yeah. of the plays. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, Mark Antony then stumbles upon this scene. Is he brought there? I can't yeah. remember. He sends, a, he sends a servant first. That's right. To that's make sure right. It's safe. But why, though? Out. Why? Like, how does he know? Is that addressed here? Um, I don't think so. Because the, spe- the, the servant comes and says... Because he immediately flees, right? They're like, where's Anthony? And then somebody says, oh, he went home. Um, and then the servant comes and says, it's line 138. Uh, Thus, Brutus, he's kneeling. Thus, Brutus, did my master bid me kneel. 
thus did Mark Antony bid me fall down, and being prostrate, thus he bade me say, Brutus is noble, wise, valiant, and honest. Caesar was mighty, bold, royal, and loving. Say, I love Brutus, and I honor him. Say, I feared Caesar, honored him, and loved him. If Brutus will vouchsafe that Antony may safely come to him and be resolved, how Caesar hath deserved to lie in death, Mark Antony shall not love Caesar dead so well as Brutus living, but will follow the fortunes and affairs of noble Brutus. So he he seems yeah. to already be aware that there's a hand that he can play. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean that in a manipulative way, but there's a hand that he can play that will allow him to live. But there's also a, a way for him to find out in advance if that's not possible. And if it's not possible, then what's he going to do? He's going to do what good Romans do when they have no chance of victory. Right. right. But he does have a sh- chance for victory based on the he, response. He does. And I find it so interesting that his first action, his first words are to Brutus. And he uses the same language that Cassius did, that Brutus is noble, wise, valiant, and honest. He plays to the Stoic virtues of a Stoic Roman, like the, the, he's flattering him. Hmm. And he knows exactly how, what Brutus wants to hear. Hmm. And he knows, this is interesting. I'm going to bring in an outside philosophical or rhetorical thing here, but, um, Andrew and I have been have been reading and discussing this book called just it's just called the Classical Trivium, and there's this kind of there's this comment in there that the author makes uh, in passing. Uh, the the author is Marshall McLuhan. Um, and he makes this comment kind of in passing about that there that the Stoics had kind of their own version of rhetoric, in which they 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 didn't really like they would just say something based on the truthfulness of it or not without whether they wanted that thing to be accepted or not, like because, because, because they're stoics, right. They're like, they didn't want to use any emotional appeals or right. to try to try to package things up to, so that they, you know, they said it positively if they wanted you to believe it negatively, if they didn't. And, and there seems to be a little bit of that even here from the words of Mark Antony through the servant that he's willing to say to Brutus, these positive things about Brutus, but he's also willing to say these positive things about Caesar. Right. And that, and that kind of knows that, that, that if Brutus is a stoic, then this is part of um, how it needs to be presented to him, that there's this honesty there. And then, and then ask his question, ask, you know, what the situation is for him. Right. Well, and here, I think with this speech, this speech from the servant, then we just get point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint rhetoric throughout the whole rest of the act. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's, it's worthy of pointing out that all of the things that Mark Antony tells the servant to describe Brutus with, noble, wise, valiant, honest, that all comes back in Antony's speech that Brutus has allowed him to make in scene two. So Brutus makes his speech. His his defense is probably familiar. It's to us, fine. But, um, yeah. it's <laughs> um, pretty abstract. But. I love I love Rome. It sounds like a he's running for office. Yeah. is mm-hmm. what it feels like. Um, I love Rome. I loved Caesar, but I love Rome more. 
Um, Caesar died for his ambition, which we need to come back to that question, don't we? Mm-hmm. Is, is ambition is ambition evil? But um, so he kind of appeases the question. crowd. Um, he appeases the crowd until Mark Antony, yeah, takes right. the pulpit, right? And then Mark Antony delivers one of the greatest speeches ever written down. That's right. Where um, he takes a speech only a good guy can give. Every <laughs> um, he takes everything Brutus said and turns it on its head. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to really take Antony as the good guy, he takes everything Brutus said and exposes it for what it really means. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Ooh, I like that latter reading. Yeah. I mean, you, he claims Caesar was ambitious. Yeah. Right. Well, ambition should be made of stronger stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He weeps when he sees the plight of the poor. Um, he comes back and brings gifts to the people after his, tri- his own triumphs. Um, he refuses the crown three times. Um, and then of course I was scrounging through his closet <laughs> and I found this piece of paper that looks like a will. Oh, right. Now oh, that yeah. this whole okay. act okay. is just bottomless. You guys, we're never going to be able to talk <laughs> right? enough about well, it. There's nothing. There's okay, no then, end. <laughs> then let me just throw out this question. Then, if Mark Antony, it, it, now we take every problem we had in reading Julius Caesar, and by reading I mean figuring him out. Sure. Right? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Um, and now you just transfer all of that to Antony. Because that's essentially what's happening. Mm-hmm. This mysterious will that he happens to find, mm-hmm. if Antony is a good guy, it's just further proof that he has every right to take vengeance and every right to accuse Brutus and the conspirators of being murderers, right? Um, not just in the literal sense, but in the worst possible sense. Um, if Mark Antony is an ambitious tyrant, just like Caesar was, do we even believe this will? Is right. is real? Right. I mean, is this I've a, always wondered. Yeah. yeah. Or is it a forgery? Is this just this false claim he's making to make Caesar look good and further his It has a seal on it. <coughs> he does say in with Caesar's yeah. seal on it. Yeah. I don't know how how secure those things are, but there is that. Because I'm sure the common I, people would have known exactly what they were right, looking at right. an authentic seal. I, Okay, so the words and the, the 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 content of the arguments themselves, like setting those aside for a moment, for me, the biggest distinction, I think the most powerful move between from comparing Brutus and and Anthony's speeches is that is that Brutus does exactly what he does the way he thinks, which mm-hmm. is he puts his his ideals out there. But he says them as if they're known and accepted and they just, you just need to be reminded of them. Yep, that's right. There's no pausing. There's no opportunity for the plebes to contemplate what he has said, to brood about what he has said. I I think, I want to clarify too that I think at least here especially, I'm using brooding in the sense more like the Holy Spirit brood above the the waters or, or contemplation brooding, not Hamlet like brooding where it's uh, pouty and moody. Yeah. Um, thanks. <laughs> so, um, he doesn't give, so I'll say contemplation instead, I guess, but he doesn't give them any opportunity to contemplate. It's just, here's the speech. Here's what we need to do. Here comes Anthony. And then they're, and they're, they accept it. 
And they're all like, yes, live Brutus. Let's take him in triumph to his home. And then let's crown him. Uh, amazingly, they say. Mm-hmm. And then and then they don't even want to listen to Antony. And he has to tell them, you need to listen to Antony. He speaks with my permission. But Antony is like speaking, 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 pauses to weep. Yep. Then, then they have. Then they do their contemplation. They have their little Socratic dialogue with each other, as it were. Right? They're talking to each other, influencing one another. And then Antony starts speaking again. They stop listening, and then he mentions the will, and then, but then says, you know, he's not going to tell them what it says. But then pauses so that they can discuss the will and start chanting, "We want to hear the will. You need to read it." Oh, no, no, no. You'd be too upset. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, yeah, you're men. And men, hearing the will of Caesar, it will inflame you. Right. Mm -hmm. Then he starts speaking again. And then he says, okay, I need to descend. Can I descend? And then there's a pause while he descends. And then they press around him. He starts speaking again. Then he lifts the cloak and he he pauses so that they can see the body Mm. wounded. Right. And there are all these pauses built into his speech where the people are allowed to kind of, even if it's just a split second, they're kind of the, the ideas that he's putting forth are allowed to soak in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's, well, he embodies them. That's what's so powerful about Mark Antony's speech versus um, Brutus's speech. Brutus's speech, by the way, is written in prose. And so what? whenever Sha- when Shakespeare writes in prose, it's a tone change. Mark Antony's is written in beautiful blank verse. Just the meter of it flows, mm. the word choice. It's, I mean, so the, the form of it is masterful. The content of it is amazing. And he embodies it. He weeps. And he lifts up the robe through which Caesar has been stabbed and points out all the different wounds, making them personal. Very concrete. Yes. If you have tears, prepare to shed them now. This is line 163. You all do know this mantle, his cloak that he was wearing. I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. So he's tying it to a personal memory Mm. and an experience in a relationship. "'Twas on a summer's evening in his tent. That day he overcame the nervii. Look, in this place ran Cassius's dagger through. See what a rent the envious Casca made. Through this, the well-beloved Brutus stabbed." Again, there's that irony that he, you know, Brutus is an honorable man. You repeat something enough, Mm. people start to question it, right? So the way that Antony plays on the emotions of the crowd as well as the embodiment that he does just connects with their hearts in the way that the stoic Brutus is either incapable of or his heart isn't even really in it anymore because he just murdered his best friend. Hmm. Well, there's in classical rhetoric, there are three kinds of proof, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's logos, ethos, pathos. And Brutus offers one, Mm -hmm. right? It's just logos. Here is the information you need to remember. Antony is a good orator. (laughs) Yeah. And he offers not only a contrary logos, but does it in a way that lends credibility to himself, lends credibility to Caesar, accuses, attacks the credibility of Brutus and the conspirators, and appeals to the emotions of the audience in a way that really is fully appropriate. Right. It's not manipulative. 
Um, it's manipulative it, as far as Brutus would be concerned because he played him. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he set him up for this. But it was wonderfully done. And it combines all three kinds of proof in a way that is just remarkable. A, a masterpiece of rhetoric. It there's, really is. There's one line that I think challenges something you said about um, that he set them up. I, I think he sets them up. I don't actually disagree with you, but I think there's one line. You think Antony set up Brutus? Is that the statement? Or that's what Brian said, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. You yeah. met Brian yeah. when you said that? Okay. I think so. Yeah. So he says, in line 239 to 240 something, he says, um, therefore I took your hands. This is after he shook hands with everybody. Therefore I took your hands, but was indeed swayed from the point by looking down on you on Caesar. Because he just gave a speech where he says all these things that sounds like he's opposed to them again. And then they're like, wait, 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 what do you mean? We shook our hands. What's going on? And he says, therefore I took your hands, but was indeed swayed from the point temporarily by looking down on Caesar. Friends am I with you all and love you all upon this hope that you shall give me reasons why and wherein Caesar was dangerous. So so there is one sense in which he's up front and says here, I will be friends with you and love you if your reasons persuade me. But Brutus never actually confirms whether his reasons persuade him. He just presents the reasons and then assumes that Antony is persuaded. And then apparently Antony was not. And gives his counter speech. Well, what I mean is that when Antony takes to the rock podium, yeah, yeah, when he stands to offer his speech, he he has fully prepared at that moment to undercut everything he agreed to. Right. That that's what I'm saying. Because at the end of Act Three, Scene One, as he exits from where the conspirators are. He just confirms he's talking to himself. Yeah. He even apologizes to the ground where Caesar's blood right. has been spilled right. and says, uh, I'm going to destroy these guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and predicts and predicts Caesar's role in that. Mm. Right. Caesar from hell will, right. will help him. Right. Or will punish them. And apparently he did. Right. Well, and Antony has been underestimated this whole time. Yeah. And as we, I mean, for, for the, our listeners, for people who are familiar with Antony and Cleopatra, he is a man of appetite. Mark Antony is. Oh yes. And far more than Caesar could have ever. Yes. He's definitely not a stoic. (laughs) So, um, or in in act two, when he comes into the room, he's drunk, right. Or hung over. Yes. Yes. And it's referred to, I mean, the way that Shakespeare even foreshadows, uh, and, and portrays Antony, I think, is quite masterful that he ends up kind of rising up after being underestimated by all these, you know, good Stoic Romans who just think he's just a man of a physical man of appetites who cannot rule. And we find here that he is very talented and very capable of pursuing what he wants. And he claims that he's not a good orator, uh, which I think is. Great. Like he's, I mean, I don't think it's great morally, but it definitely lends credence to his ability to manipulate the situation. Yeah. I kind of see him a little bit as like, in my mind, I see him as like a tiger kind of in the shadows, um, 
kind of slinking around while these events are playing out and then pouncing in to use them to his advantage. Um, So you, you mean, you could make the case that Mark Antony is the real hero of the story. um, But then you'd have to keep reading Shakespeare until you get to Antony and Cleopatra. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And if, and if you're really determined to see Antony as a hero, don't read any history about what he actually did. Exactly. Don't do it. It's a, yeah. Bad news. He, yeah. <laughs> but he is not a, he is not in, in a truly noble Roman, the way the Romans would have defined nobility. He's too much a man driven by his own appetites. Even in the play, that's how, why he's dismissed and underestimated. He eats too much. He drinks too much. He's not philosophical enough. He's just kind of the, this young protege of Caesar, but he is shown here to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. Right. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, kind of the one thing, I guess, in these closing minutes that I want to point out about with respect to Act 3 is, um, is you know, Act, Act 3, Scene 2 ends with Antony basically confessing or saying that Rome has been prepared for Octavius. Yeah, I mean, he finds out Octavius is already there, which he hadn't been expecting. But, um, but Rome is prepared for Octavius, and then, and then there's this there's this interesting contrast. Um, let me see if I can find the line real quick. But in Act Three, Scene One, I think Brutus makes the comment that you know, hey, when we do this, um, it's on us. Like nobody else is going to. Oh, he says in in line, it's like 103 or so. He says, um, do so and let no man abide this deed, but we the doers. Hmm. So, and, and then the huh. note says that abide means, you know, face the consequences of, right? Brutus is, Brutus seems, seems to at least want to have the desire to protect just, you know, other people, other senators, the average Roman, et cetera, from suffering any any harm from the consequences of this, of this behavior. But then Mark Antony riles the crowd up, sends them out to mutiny with no regard for anybody mm-hmm. to include non-conspirators like sin of the poet in scene three. Yeah. Right. Which, and I think, I think it's, I think that makes sense of why that scene is there because it shows that Mark Antony was so, like Mark, whatever Mark Anthony's bent was, whatever his aim was, it protecting the average Roman citizen or or resident did not was not part of it or didn't, right. didn't matter to him. I think that's true, and I think that is the what you just said is some of the case upon which I would make that the will is legit. I think that Caesar's will will is real here, and that. What we have is a descent into madness beginning, right? Because with Caesar's death, now you have Brutus on one side and the conspirators who are who show some evidence of becoming like Caesar. Just or you have Mark Antony on the other side, who's a g- generation of Caesar. He has all of the bad qualities of Caesar. He's ambitious, and which I don't think him as ambition is evil, but in this case, he is manipulating to his advantage without regard for the people of Rome. And 
Caesar at least loved the Roman people and Mark Antony does not. So Brutus wants to protect them from harmful consequences. Caesar wants to support them with his finances and his, you know, gardens. And Mark Antony could could, could care, care so little that he's willing to rile up a crowd and let them. Mark Antony wants right. He yeah. is actually the thing that the he's the one that the conspirators should have killed if they wanted to protect Rome, right? You so, would have to be like a special kind of, pardon my my French here, but mm-hmm. a special kind of idiot to think Mark Antony's the good guy. Right. That's true. <laughs> so I can't imagine anyone ever. Anyone would nobody would say ever that. Say even in jest. Yeah, that's <laughs> off limits. But that's, I but guess that. We, yeah. <laughs> But it's worse. It's degenerating already. (laughs) Rome is falling apart already upon the death of Caesar. And at least, I I think Brutus was corrupt. I've made that point several times. But he is, he did love Rome. He does love Rome still. Mm -hmm. He He was deceived and weak and corrupted. But Mark Antony is just, he's just power hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maybe. We'll see what Act 4 and 5 say. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's more to this play. It's not over? It's not over. But the main, the title character is dead. That's just <laughs> that's just something that happens in all of Shakespeare's tragedies. Oh. Anything you guys want to say in this last, uh, your closing comments? Brian? No. Heidi? Farewell, Caesar. We hardly knew ye. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor guy. We are about to die. Salute you. <laughs> You're about to die. <laughs> All right, then. Thanks. I thanks. I thought this was a good conversation. I'm oh, on. so good. I'm loving yeah. this, you guys. This is great. I don't know if it's fire, but... <laughs> we'll have to check the comments. A glowing ember, at least. <laughs> yes. All right, guys. Thanks. And then we'll uh, we'll meet up again for Acts 4 and then 5. And then I guess we'll do the Q&A thing, right? All right. Yep, That's we the will. Norm, the normal pattern. Thanks That's for listening, right. everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. 
treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.